Revelation Church. Welcome. Special welcome to our guests. At this point in the service, if you're uh, new here, we basically take a time to study a portion of Scripture. And the reason why we do that is because we believe that through the work of the Holy Spirit, as we study the Word of God, we learn about God. We also learn about how we should relate to Him and how we should relate to each other. Today we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you open it up, it's chapter 14. And you might notice at the top of the heading, it says, John the Baptist beheaded. And if you've spent any time growing up in the church, you've probably heard this story more than once. So I'm asking you, just for this morning, to set aside your knowledge of this story. Not that I'm going to provide you some new epiphany about the story or anything like that. But the book of Matthew is written in a way that Matthew is working towards something. He's trying to convince you of something. He originally wrote the book for the Jewish people. And he wants to convince the Jewish people of that time that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been looking for. So there's going to be a storyline throughout this gospel. And as you read it, it should draw you in. It should suck you in. You should want to know more. So my desire today, as we read this story, that it would be relatable. Because it's a story about people. Yes, the context is a little bit different. The culture is different. However, the story is about people and the things that they struggle with. People back then would seek power and influence. They struggle with pride, fear, anger, and lust. We as people in our current context if we're honest with ourselves, struggle with the same faults. So as we read this story, there should be something that we can relate to. And hopefully, through the work of the Holy Spirit, it convicts myself, convicts you, and challenges us. With that said, let's jump into the story. So some of you might enjoy a good reality TV show or maybe a soap opera. What makes reality TV show so attractive? Ultimately, it's drama. We enjoy drama. And I find that kind of funny considering if you talk to people, they want less and less drama in their life. But we have no problem turning on the TV and watching drama play out on the screen. Kind of interesting. I personally never really liked soap operas, and it's not for a good reason. It's not like a moral reason or anything like that. It's because when I was little, and I'd come home from a hard day at school, 10 years old, I want to 
I'm tired, I want to sit down on the couch, and I want to watch a cartoon. Turn on the TV, boom, what's there? Soap opera. Oh, man. It's about as bad as it can get, except for Saturday mornings when the Olympics were on. I never really got tied into the drama of the Olympics. However, this passage today should suck you in with the drama that is played out as we read this story. So essentially what we're going to do is we're just going to slowly work through the passage and talk about what's going on there. And just like any kind of good drama, there's a cast. So what I'm going to do is introduce you to the cast. Can we go ahead and pull up the map here? And as we pull this up, we have Herod the Great. If you remember in chapter 2 of Matthew, it talks about Herod ordering the death of all the baby boys two years and younger throughout the area. Now, now at this time, he has passed, and his kingdom has been divided up into three different areas. And as you look here, the area that we're talking about today is in the purple. This is the area in which Herod the Tetrarch ruled. So he is the son of Herod the Great. He has divorced his wife, who was the daughter of Eretus IV, who was from the southeast region down in the white bottom right corner. So obviously they married for a political reason. Next up is Herodias. I kind of think of her as I'm reading through this story as Ursula from The Little Mermaid. She's an evil, conniving person. She's the wife of Herod of Philip, which turns out to be her uncle. She renounces him because back in that time they couldn't, women couldn't divorce from men, but regardless, she renounced the marriage to her uncle so that then she could marry her other uncle, Herod the Tetrarch. They are the epitome, as a couple, the epitome of keeping up with the Joneses. So you can insert whatever celebrity political family you'd like to. I think of the Kardashians and the drama associated there, okay? Herod and Herodias wanted it all. They wanted the power. They wanted the fame. And they were willing to do anything to have it. For example, Herodias actually pushed Herod at one point to go to the Roman authorities and have his title changed from Tetrarch, which is essentially a ruler of an area, to king. They wanted, she wanted Herod to have the title king because of what that meant. Could not settle for a ruler over a territory. So they wanted to be in the mix. They're power hungry. Then there's Herodias' daughter, Salome. And keep in mind, this is Herodias' 
or uh, excuse me, this is Herod's niece. This will come into play as we read through the scriptures. And then last is John the Baptist. And he's caught up in this family drama of what's going on here. He's also named the forerunner of Jesus, which we'll get to a little bit later here. So now that we have the cast set, we're ready to jump into the story and see what happens. So starting in Matthew 14, verse 1, it says, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. <clears throat> the chief priests and the scribes were looking for cunning ways. Oops, I apologize. I'm reading out of Mark. My bad. Let me go back here. Here we go. Uh, Matthew 14, 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. So if you remember, as we're working our way through Matthew, Jesus initially started with a very quiet ministry. He didn't want people to know what was going on. At this point, it's starting to bubble up. So you can think of it just like, okay, he's got a little following, then it kind of grows to a larger following, more people are taking notice, and then eventually it gets up to the ruler of the area. You can kind of think of it as like a presidential security briefing. Okay, Herod, we need, have you heard about Jesus? He's got a pretty strong following. We should probably uh, keep an eye on him, see what's going on. So Jesus' popularity is growing. And Herod draws a conclusion about who Jesus is. Looking at verse 2, this is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. So there's some confusion here. What's going on with John? He's returned with superpowers. And then as we think about that, we think, ah, oh, that's kind of strange. What a weird culture. They think people come back with superpowers and come back from the dead. They're a ghost. Weird theology, weird superstition. But if you think about it, we do the same thing. Anybody heard of Elvis? Maybe Tupac? A little more uh, recent. So as you're reading this, you look at it and go, okay, John the Baptist is returning from the dead. Whoa, 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 what happened here? So now we have a flashback. For those of you that have seen Wayne's World, it's the we're flashing back here, okay? So looking at uh, verses three and four, for Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So Herod had put John in jail for the sake of his wife because she didn't like what John was doing. You can think of it as a, it's a threat to their reign. They don't want to lose power. They don't want to lose control. So now they want to get rid of him. But John here is calling him out. He's saying that it's unlawful 
for you, Herod, to have Herodias. Now, what's he referring to? So if we go back into the Jewish law in Leviticus, go back there with me real quick. It's uh, Leviticus 18, 16. And so Leviticus is the law that was given to the Jewish people as a standard. You can see in verse 16, you are not to have sexual intercourse with your brother's wife. She is your brother's family. It's also another reference. Leviticus 20, 21. Seems a, says a very similar statement. It says, if a man marries his brother's wife, it's an impurity. He has violated the intimacy that belongs to his brother. They will be childless. So John is calling them out and telling them that it is wrong, the relationship that they have. What's interesting is that the Jewish leaders of the time would think the same thing because they subscribe to the Leviticus law as well. So they're upset at Herod and Herodias. They think that what they're doing is wrong. John is also talking about a new kingdom. Remember, he was the forerunner for Jesus. So he's talking about a new kingdom that is coming. So if you're in the position of Herod and Herodias, you're like, this is a threat. We need to deal with this. We can't allow this to continue. And to add to the fire, the verb here implies that John called them out repeatedly. So it wasn't just a one-time confrontation. It was over and over. And it was most likely in public. So it was very, um, very confrontational, very aware of what was going on. And this upset Herod. As we look in uh, verse 5 of Matthew 14, Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. So the crowd viewed John as a prophet. Herodias wanted to kill him, but didn't because he was fearful of the people. Herod was frustrated and angry with the situation. And in fact, in Mark's account, it talks about Herod being fascinated by John. So he's angry and frustrated with the situation, but he's also fascinated with John. How do you reconcile those? Some people have pointed that out as a contradiction. I don't think it is. John was calling Herod to repentance. He was telling him what he was doing was wrong. He called the sin out, but he did it in an intriguing way. And if we kind of take a minute and reflect on that, do we do that? Do we, or are we somewhere else on the spectrum? Do we not call sin out? Or do we call it out in an unloving way? Or are we like John and able to do it, both of those simultaneously? I think it's kind of interesting. If you go back 
to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 13. Jesus is talking about being salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives it light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So I think the way you reconcile those conflicting discussions between Matthew and Mark is you look at it from the standpoint that John was salt and light. It's that tension that we're called to. We might frustrate people by confronting sin. But we do it in an intriguing way. Full of good works that point people to God. It's really, ultimately, the truth and love together working simultaneously. John lived it out in front of Herod. However, Herod's time for repentance is starting to fade. And now as we jump back into the story, verse 6, chapter 14, says, When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. Herod's birthday parties would have involved complete debauchery. He would have, based on historical information, he would have invited all the social elites, people, his military generals, everybody that was the quote-unquote upper class male would come to these parties. And it would initially start with a bunch of drinking and fighting and then lead to seductive dancing, which then led to orgies. It's complete depravity. And yet, it's very similar to today. There's times when the revivals have come within the church and I would suggest that the evil, the debauchery that we see in our society, we look specifically more within our culture and how is our culture doing. And if you look at it, it's kind of in a cyclical pattern. You can have times where there's people turning back to Christ, and then there's times a generation or two later because they didn't experience that revolution or revival, whatever you want to call it, they kind of fade off a little bit, and then it kind of comes back. 
So there's really nothing new under the sun. And so Herod, in his drunken state, was ultimately turned on by his niece. This is how far in his drunken, crazed state he was gone. Then you kind of think about it for a minute and then wonder, can it get any worse? The story continues. Verse 7. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. This just shows how far he was gone. He was willing to offer Herodias' daughter whatever she wanted. In Mark's gospel, it talks about Herod offering up half his kingdom, which isn't necessarily, it's more of a figure of speech, but that's kind of the idea. Basically willing to give you whatever you want. So now the trap is set. The opportunity has arrived. Herodias enters in. We look at verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she asked, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Herodias has Herod right where she wants him. Like a game of chess, Herod's in checkmate. Or at least check. Herodias wants to get rid of John. Once again, John's a threat. So like any threat, we've got to get rid of it. So you see the tensions right there. Herod has the positional power available to him to do something, to stop this situation. He's not a very influential leader, but he does still have the positional power to make a statement that I was wrong and no, we're not going to do that. But just like I asked you earlier, to kind of put aside what you know about the story, let's jump into verse 9. Does he do it? Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. He could have done something different. Herod, in his drunken state, didn't want to give up his pride, didn't want to lose face in front of his friends. He was fearful of what the people around him would think. Instead of being concerned about the right thing to do, he was more concerned about the people and their opinions of him. So now, John the Baptist suffers the ultimate consequence for Herod's choices. 
So you look in verse 10 and 11. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Wait a minute. An important character just died. They're not supposed to die. It's like saving Private Ryan. For any of you that uh, have not seen it, spoiler alert. But Tom Hanks, he plays uh, Captain Miller. And he's tasked with finding Private Ryan. Because Private Ryan's brothers have all been killed in World War II. And so the job is find him so that they can protect the, the namesake. And so Tom Hanks, as Captain Miller, has to find Private Ryan. And you watch the movie as it plays out, and he becomes a pretty substantial character. And you're thinking, all right, this is going good. He's been in some struggles. He's been in some battles. He's survived. He's doing well. Then you get down to the end. He finds Private Ryan. They have to defend a bridge, and he ends up getting killed. It's not something that's expected. And I think as you kind of read through this story, that should kind of hit you too. Wait, John the Baptist died? What's that about? And what's interesting is Jerome, who's a Latin Catholic priest, actually says that Herodias, when the head of John the Baptist on the platter was brought to her, she spit on it, took out his tongue, and stuck a pin in it. I really meant to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this, so I apologize. I should have done that. <laughs> but what's interesting about that is that this is like, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's Fulvia, who was a Roman aristocrat, who essentially, before Herodias, did the exact same thing. So let that sink in for a minute. Herodias wanted to be part of the elite class so bad that she was willing to do just anything, even copy strange behavior. And now as we kind of come to the end of the story for this section, there is a little bit of hope. And looking in verse 12, then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. If you recall when we were reading in chapter 11, John was doubting about what Jesus was about. Like, are you truly the, the king? Are you the messianic figure that is going to restore the Jewish people? And so we see here that the disciples of John go and report it to Jesus. So I think that's kind of interesting in the fact that there, there must have been some sort of reconciliation there between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. 
And it's actually believed that a number of John's disciples actually became disciples of Jesus. So the story comes to an end. We're left wondering what in the world just happened. (laughs) But I think there are some things that we can take away from this. And if you think about Herod specifically, he dealt with some pretty serious sins. He had pride. He wasn't willing to repent. He had anger, which he was frustrated with John and ultimately led to John's death. Lust. He lusted after his own niece. He was divorced from his first wife. And I think it's interesting that Herod struggled with those things because if we go back to Matthew chapter 5 again in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 21, Jesus refers to his exact sins. First off, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So the old law was don't murder. Jesus is calling, hey, if you're angry, you're subject to judgment unless you go to that brother and sister and handle the situation. So Herod was guilty on the fact that he ended up murdering John the Baptist. And if you scroll down a little bit farther to 27, you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So putting aside the adultery piece, Herod was committing adultery when he looked upon his niece. Then you scroll down a little bit farther, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I want to put a disclaimer out here just real quick in regards to the subject on divorce. If you are here this morning and you find yourself in that situation, please know there is grace found in Jesus Christ. Okay? So if, if you are unlike Herod, who went unchecked and truly seek after Christ and ask for repentance, then you are completely different than Herod. You are in a different position. I just want to make sure that that's shared this morning. But ultimately, Herod's sin did go unchecked. And even though John was right there calling him out, And what did Herod get for it? He was bankrupt. He had the opportunity to repent. 
And with the passing of John, it came and went. And just like Herod was silent when he could have said something, Jesus is silent before him. Let's go to Luke 23, 6 through 9. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean, speaking of Jesus. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. It, it, that should strike you. That should cause you to think about that for a minute. But ultimately, I think Herod got what he wanted. He wanted the fame and fortune. He wanted the power. If he truly understood who Jesus was, he had Jesus standing before him. But he ends up actually losing it all. In fact, it's kind of ironic, but the brother of his ex-wife, remember the kingdom down in the southeast, actually comes and attacks him, captures him, and sends him into exile with Herodias. So he ends up completely bankrupt. And as we think about that, I just want to throw some questions to ponder. I think it's good to think about this. What small weakness in our life today could one day become real wickedness? What's that thing that's, that we struggle with that's kind of smoldering that could eventually become something real ugly? What Herod characteristics are lurking inside of us that could lead to ours or someone else's destruction. Herod's characteristics led to the destruction of John the Baptist. If we can honestly answer these questions, then we begin to understand the reason why Jesus presses on beyond the forerunner. Think of John as the one in battle carrying the flag that ends up getting shot and the people behind him continue pressing on. Just like that, Jesus presses on. He ends up like John, dead. But almost. He ends up resurrected. And as we think about that, and come to a time of communion, I ask that you reflect on these questions. I think it's really easy to end up like Herod. However, this is a big however, because of, Jesus, uh, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we're able to enter into a loving, complete relationship with our Creator. 
which really should call us to a place of repentance and a heart of thankfulness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it brings. Even though we may not like it, it may confront us exactly where we are, Lord, and put us in an uncomfortable position, Lord. It is your word. It's the work of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to be at work in our lives, Lord. May we be able to identify those things that we struggle with and give them to you before they become something completely ugly and disastrous, Lord. Pray for this week ahead, Lord. Pray that we would be salt and light to the world, Lord. That we would confront sin when it is appropriate, but ultimately we would do it in a loving way, just like our Savior Jesus Christ did. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.